Welcome to the Common Good Hour, where we talk about the practices, activities, and advocacy efforts of successful nonprofits and nonprofit leaders. I'm Drew Reynolds. And I am Roger Saclupe. Today, we are going to complete our series on practices of encounter by talking about bridging cultural, linguistic, and even geographic divides. So we're thrilled to be able to invite Sam Stanton and Cecilia Espinoza, um, two dear uh, friends and mentors of mine, uh, to the show as they share about their experience working in the context of lay mission work in rural Chile. Uh, and we just actually got to record that episode or that, that interview. So Roger, that was just awesome, wasn't it? That was such a great interview. Uh, just getting the opportunity to meet uh, two individuals who are very passionate about the work uh, that they're doing. And they've done um, in Chile, but also they're really passionate about, I could feel the passion they have for you, Drew, and how as, as much of an influence they were in your life, they were, they were pretty open about how, you know, you influence them as well, or how students influence them as well as they, as they've um, moved and navigated through life, um, work, doing the work that they're doing um, at Notre Dame, and then also um, in Chile. So it was a great interview. Yeah, and they were the perfect uh, people to bring on, I think, because it's a, to conclude our conversation on encounter, because uh, what they do for work, and they'll talk about this more in the interview, is has in so many different areas and aspects of their of their lives and their careers, have really been about bridging people across cultural difference and different boundaries, and also working through um, some really challenging conflict, including through a dictatorship in Chile. Um, uh, back starting in 1973. So uh, really excited about that interview and excited to share that with each of you. And so to prepare us for that, we also want to expand um, one, uh, one final concept we want to talk about in our series on encounter. It's FOIL or indifference. And so, you know, when we say let's create a culture of encounter, you might be thinking, yeah, sure. Like we all do that every day. It's great to encounter and meet new people. We want to be open to relationship in our lives and and that sort of thing. But to help clarify, it can help to talk about how easy it can be for indifference to find its way into our lives. Um, even for people who are out there doing social, doing social sector work, living, doing nonprofit work, social workers, the, the people who are, are out there doing the work, as we say, that indifference has its way of, of, of finding its way in. That's right, Drew. And, and by indifference, what we mean is that it can be really easy for us to stay in there in in our safe space right in our comfortable safe spaces it's easy to get preoccupied with our own struggles and challenges that it becomes difficult to enter into the reality and 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 really understand the suffering of other individuals so how do we how do we become indifferent right um, so we can be indifferent to the suffering of people we don't see, right? We can, uh, we can be indifferent to the wars and conflict in countries that are not our own, to the challenges of a public school that isn't in our neighborhood, to the gentrification of a community whose history we do not understand, to the waste of the food we buy and choose not to eat, to the use of carbon that is making the planet uninhabitable for our children. Yeah, it's like we'd rather not be inconvenienced it's like by the suffering of others. And I don't mean that like indifference is something that just heartless people, you know, experience, but something that even, you know, those in the helping professions or in social work and in a nonprofit practice that, that we can become indifferent. We can become hardened and calloused even 
to the pain and suffering that we may encounter each day. Um, especially it can sometimes even be numbing for those professionals who are um, engaged in doing work with populations that experience considerable trauma or difficulty. And so this indifference can creep into our lives when, when we don't have those moments of encounter, for example, like when we're not out there um, and crossing those social divides that make up our, our everyday lives, or when we ignore the news and stories of conflict around the world, or we misunderstand how our vote or our civic participation may impact the education of a child down the road, you know, as you were saying, Roger, um, or how, you know, uh, there may be in our community a developer is putting together luxury options in a historical neighborhood that, that don't take the time to create the community dialogue needed to create options for affordable housing and to combat gentrification. Um, and speaking about the environment, as you're sharing, Roger, too, it's, you know, we can uh, sometimes eat what we want and drive where we please without really considering the effects of those decisions on the environment um, and, and how that not just our own individual decisions, but our collective decisions as a, as a community and as a culture can have an impact on, on, that, on that challenge. And so in these examples that Roger, you and I just kind of shared, none of them are being like, quote unquote, actively a bad person, right? We're not sort of you know, actively trying to harm other people, people might think I'm just trying to live my life and get by. But this sort of indifference can speak to the kind of and I am say this in quotes here, like sins, like, I mean, that in a secular sense, not really in a religious one, against our community that we commit when we lose our sense of rootedness or our sense of encounter with others, and it becomes a lot easier to do when we um, our attachment, you know, to all of our sort of interactions with others are mediated through screens and social media and technology. It's almost like you can just turn off the suffering, turn off the pleas for help, turn off the challenges that other people are experiencing by just turning off the television or closing your computer screen. Um, and so it seems like it's even uh, easier now to keep our lives from being interrupted and, and we lose these moments of embodied encounter with others. But I mean, I, I recognize that this is really hard. Um, especially for many in our audience who are probably out there working in social settings. And I think at times as myself as a social worker, when I felt tired or worn down or overwhelmed by the work and times when I've missed opportunities for true relationship and encounter because I've become so concerned with my own needs and my own challenges. Right. This goes back to what we've discussed previously and uh, about empathy and apathy Right. So going into this type of work, we do develop a lot of empathy. It's, it's rooted in, in, in it's important in our interactions with others, with communities. But then over time, it, it can change into apathy. And then we become very numb to our surroundings. Uh, and, and that can be toxic and it can be dangerous. And I'm glad that we're having this discussion because we need to be aware of it as we become aware of it, then we can be proactive about how to move from an, a space of apathy back to a space of empathy, and then also how to avoid going back into that space of apathy, right? Um, you know, one thing I'm reminded real quick, Drew, you had mentioned about, you know, how we're, we're, we all are, we're embedded in, uh, we're attached to screens and social medias and technology and things like that. And so um, as, as listeners have been made aware of from our previous, uh, these last uh, episodes, uh, my mom passed away and just recently. And then um, I received a, a handwritten note from one of my wife's friends. And uh, it, it, it really, 
it meant it spoke to me. It meant a lot to me. I can't remember the last time I received a, a handwritten letter, and it was just so amazing for me. It, it it definitely was part of is part of my healing process. But um, but yeah, I just was very thankful that uh, my wife's friend, um, her name is Megan Montgomery, just took the time to write me a note, a nice letter, and it it really spoke to me. And just those those little things, right? To make connection with people is what we need to keep uh, keep focused on, remind ourselves about. Yeah, and I think it's a, a great example when you talk about like the, how a handwritten note means more, even now, like I feel like it means more than it did when people were writing handwritten notes all the time because they're so unique and so special that you can imagine the person taking the time to pull out a pen, to put away whatever other media were distracting them and to dedicate their full attention and time to you um, as you were, you know, walking on this journey in grief after the loss of your mother. I'll share an example here too, that is one that I come back to a lot and has been, um, you know, we talk a lot about movies and culture and music. And so I'll share from one, a scene from one movie that uh, I think speaks to this topic a lot. And that I come back to when I feel like I need that sense of uh, rejuvenation or that reminder of my why of why I'm in this work and why it's important to me and to to sort of remove the scales of indifference that I can sometimes come across my eyes. So I shared this scene from a movie called The Motorcycle Diaries, which is a film that was released back in 2004 featuring Gael Garcia Bernal, who's just amazing as uh, Ernesto Che Guevara. The film uh, chronicles Che's life before his life would take a more controversial turn with the Cuban Revolution. And my purpose in sharing the story is not to comment on the later aspects of his life, uh, but rather that throughout the film, Che traverses, traverses Latin America with his companion Alberto on this motorcycle. And they have these amazing journeys. And uh, the film is beautiful because you see so much of the Argentinian and Chilean and then Peruvian landscape throughout um, the, the film. And they're on this journey of self-discovery, but also of encounter where they're uh, regularly interacting with people with whom they would not have otherwise interacted and met. And uh, many of these experiences are with poor and working people and that those experiences fundamentally change his life forever. And one of these experiences that was really powerful was when he was visiting the San Pablo leper colony, which is in the remote jungle of Peru, right? Kind of where the Amazon stretches in the, in the northern part of it. Che was at the time intended to be a, a doctor. He was studying medicine. And so he was really interested in, in, in health and in each of these encounters that he has with people. And so he discovered when he went to this leper colony that people living with leprosy were required to live on the opposite side of the river of those who were caring for them, the nurses and for the caretakers. Uh, and throughout human history, uh, leprosy has often been associated with isolation because of the nature of the contagion of its disease. And it's all the more relevant now as we think about COVID <laughs> and how that can sometimes cause that sense of social isolation as, as well. But of course, leprosy is different because it's longer lasting. Um, and so it can re result in this permanent um, isolation of individuals from a community. And uh, when the medical professionals would visit the colony, they would wear gloves and protective materials, even though for many in the colony, I believe um, that they were at a stage in their leprosy that meant they were actually no longer contagious. So the, the gloves were actually not entirely necessarily. And for Che, the division of the river and these protective materials that the um, providers, the caretakers would wear were symbols of the social constructs and the types of things that divide us and them, rich and poor, European, indigenous, healthy, and sick. And so he's reflecting on all of this. And in one of these really powerful scenes in the film, 
he's celebrating his birthday on the side of the river where the caretakers are and they're being very kind to him and he, they're having a good time. Um, but he, you can see that he's feeling as though he's having this great moment of celebration, but that there's part of him that's missing that's on the other side of that river. And so he jumps in and he swims to the other side and he's facing rapid currents and he's really struggling to breathe because he's asthmatic. And so he's really struggling in this for a moment. You don't know if he's actually going to make it across the river. But then he finally gets there to the other side and he doesn't have any of the protective materials. He doesn't have any of those kind of divisions that would have otherwise divided him and the people living on the other side um, and has this moment of really truly authentic encounter. And there's this big celebration because he makes it and he's alive. Um, and for me, this scene always, you know, it's a bit dramatic, but it, it highlights the way in which I see encounter as something that requires us taking a big step, requires us to be courageous. It requires courage, the courage to change our lives into our practices and to allow our lives to be changed and transformed. And, you know, in some cases, even jump into a river. You know what, Drew, that's just an, an amazing story. I, I want to watch the film. I have, I've never seen it. So now I'm going to have to uh, put it on my list of films to watch here over the summer. Um, but Talking about the journey from moving into a safe space to a brave space, and 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 our, our dear friend and colleague Dr. V, um, she talks about that. Uh, she and I have had many conversations about safe space and brave space, and how safe space is where we're comfortable, and there's not. I mean, of course, we want to be in a space where we're comfortable, right? Who who doesn't want to be in that? comfortable space. But moving into a brave space is moving into a space where you're you're making you're taking risks and and you're taking those risks because you know it's the right thing to do. And so moving from that safe space to brave space um, is is a is is a step. Um, and and uh, and I see that when you were when I heard I heard you telling us the story, I started thinking about the, uh, the safe space versus brave space concept. Absolutely. And so I encourage our listeners as, as you reflect in your car, your drive, or maybe you're working out now, wherever you do your podcast routine, uh, to take some time today to reflect on the importance of, of courage and of bravery and, and moving into those brave spaces so that you can move beyond that sense of indifference and and reflect on the ways in which that has happened to you, those moments in your life where you've probably maybe had a chance to experience that. Um, and also areas where you think you might want to grow or see that um, as something that comes up in the future. I mean, certainly we've all had a huge challenge with this pandemic. And so the idea of having embodied encounters with other people might seem so challenging now in a world that is so isolated um, as a result of this pandemic. But uh, perhaps these, this conversation, our conversation with you today can help give you that sense of hope that we may have an opportunity as the pandemic hopefully gets more under control that we can have these moments that are so necessary for us in doing this work. And so with that, we will um, going to be jumping into our interview with Sam and Cecilia in just a minute. But before we do so, we'll have to do our trivia. It is time for trivia. So Bet You Don't Remember is the 80s, 90s trivia game that comes from the Common Good Hour. We ask the question and you, the listener, test your knowledge of the music, movies, and culture of the 80s and 90s. So Roger, can you ask our trivia question this week? 
Drew, I don't mind if I do. So, listeners, get your 80s denim jacket on. Get your red leather suits on because this 80s and 90s trivia question is going to blow your minds away. All right, so here we go. George Michael was one of the most successful artists during the 80s and 90s with classic hits like Careless Whisper, Faith, Freedom 90, and Father Figure, just to name a few. He had four number one singles as a solo artist, one as a duet with Aretha Franklin, and three as a member of this music duo. Bet you don't remember the name of the music duo that launched George Michael's career. And for extra bonus points, bet you don't remember the name of the other member in the duo. Ooh, this is good, Roger. I, I can't wait to see the uh, how our listeners think about this and the answers that come on in. I, I, I want to know a little bit about this. How did you come up with this question? Like, was there a moment in your day that you were reminded of George Michael or how did it come up? All right. So I don't know why. But for some reason, I'm just, I'm sitting there on my couch working on, on stuff. I, I might've been uh, prepping for a, a class or something, but anyway, um, the, the song, I don't want to give it away. There okay, you can't, song, can't give away the song. The song comes on. Yep. But the song comes, doesn't come on. <laughs> it just comes into my brain for some reason out of nowhere. And then, and then I was like, you know what, this is going to be. I bet you don't know trivia questions. So, so if I give away the song, it's giving away the answer. But it, in, out of left field, this this song just started playing in my head, and I'm like, why am I thinking of this song right now? And then I was like, well, you know what? This is just going to be trivia. So, man, there we go. Well, you never know when that song pops into your head, but we've all had that experience before when something back from that era just pops in, and you're like, how did that get there? So. Um, so if you think you know the name of the music duo that launched George Michael's career, post your answer to this episode, social media posts on Twitter, Insta, or Facebook, and we'll randomly select a respondent who will receive a free common good hour sticker in the mail. Um, and so also for those of you who tuned in last week and are just waiting on the edge of your seats to hear the answer of that trivia question, Roger, can you tell us the name of Val Kilmer's classic spy comedy film? Drew, I sure can. The classic spoof spy comedy film from the 80s with Val Kilmer is drum roll please top secret I mean <laughs> if, if if you didn't know about top secret before today I, I really suggest you just dust off that VCR and go get that that videotape and pop that in there I'm pretty sure you can get it online now but top secret I mean, I it was such one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my life at that point. As I was a teen, you know, I was a teenager, so or sure. I was a preteen, so it was even better. Eighties, <laughs> eighties humor. So yeah. And also you had a great story too that came up um in your classroom where uh a listener had um uh shared with you the answer to one of our week's career questions previously. Yeah, 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 correct. So um, I had two guest speakers uh, for one of the courses that I teach here um, at the university. And as we were winding down and I was thanking the guest speakers and um, he said, hey, hey, wait a minute. I want my sticker. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, um, the answer to the trivia question 
is O'Shea Jackson. And I'm like, that is correct, sir. You now are the recipient of a Common Good Hour podcast sticker. So Edwin Arce Jr. is the uh, winner of, of that uh, trivia question. And so we just wanted to give him a shout out and thank him, uh, not only for being uh, a listener, but also um, thank him for his service. Uh, Edwin is um, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. And uh, also I had the honor and privilege of being one of his professors uh, during his tenure here uh, at UNC Charlotte in the uh, three-year program for the MSW program. So um, really a great, a great individual. I'm honored to call him a colleague and now my friend. So Edwin, excellent work. So this week, if you remember the answer to the music duo that launched George and Michael's career, find the Common Good Hour on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter, or just honestly just barge into Roger's classroom and demand a sticker, and you'll find your <laughs> way to uh, to getting one there. And uh, we'll share. Um, <laughs> sorry, I completely messed this up. And share your answer in the comments, or compose your post, and you'll have a chance to win a Common Good Hour sticker. Uh, thanks again for playing along with us as we took a trip down memory lane with Bet You Don't Remember. So today we are so excited to be joined by Sam Stanton and Cecilia Espinoza, two people who are very dear uh, to my heart, and we're excited to welcome them to the Common Good Hour today. And uh, Sam and Cecilia, I'm actually going to allow them to provide an introduction to their lives. Sometimes we do a bio at the beginning of these, but I would love for um, uh, our listeners to be able to hear from them directly about their work and their involvement. But I'll share before we do that, that I've gotten to know Sam and Cecilia, um, and I've known them for a long time now, and that they had a particularly in, um, big impact on my life and, and, and how I have chosen my uh, career in, in this work. And so I'm excited to share that with our listeners today. So if we could start, uh, Sam, could you, or and Cecilia, could you give us an introduction uh, to yourselves and to your work? Yeah, uh, Sam Stanton, Cecilia will speak after. And um, I think one thing that's very important in my history is who I am. I'm from Kansas, from North Central Kansas. Grew up in a very rural area. Uh, and went to Kansas State University uh, in social work. I was also a social worker as well. And uh, I think the influence in that part of my life, of just where I come from, is very much a part of who I am and how I've journeyed. Uh, down the road, I went to, uh, well, to Chile through a program at Notre Dame. And that's where I met Cecilia while working as a Holy Cross associate with the Holy Cross Fathers uh, who run Notre Dame in Chile back in 1978 was the first time I went. In the fifth year of the 17 year uh, dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. So it was rather an interesting time in Chilean history to be uh, immersed into that reality. Um, I met Cecilia, some sort of a protest. <laughs> and then eventually we got to know each other and uh, decided to, to marry and married in Chile in 1981 and came back to the States in 82. With three children. <laughs> well, yeah. We didn't have the three children there. <laughs> but we have them <laughs> um, well, I also need to say I am from Chile and I was born in a working class neighborhood and uh, 
And those, and, and I live in very important times. And I also, I belong to a family that was very committed uh, in a parish to the service of others. So I think those elements shape also my life and my decisions and my commitment, especially to the poor, to the suffering people, to the people who uh, needed someone to work with them in their lives. So I am an occupational therapist and uh, also I am a family therapist uh, that I got a master's in science here in, in the United States. And, um, and so this profession also has helped me a lot. Mental health has been one of the uh, aspects of life that I have been very interested in. And uh, like he said, we married, we went to live in Phoenix, Arizona for a short period of time where our three children actually were born. So they are from Arizona. And um, I worked there in a, a pastoral uh, university uh, doing a lot of work with the students and especially black and Latino students, because I, I actually work in a, in a college that was for black and, and Latino students. So that was a privilege. I, I really liked that experience. As well, I love music. So I, I directed the choir, the Spanish choir at our parish, and we were very committed at that parish. And, and I think to do just a little bit more on my background, kind of what led me to the commitment to go to Chile. After uh, being involved at Kansas State, I was very interested in what was happening in the Hispanic community in the United States and the role that the church played, especially back in the 70s. Uh, in the 60s, the time of Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers and all those sorts of movements that were happening. And so I went for a summer at, uh, in San Antonio, Texas, uh, worked in a social service center in Guadalupe Parish in San Antonio under the tutelage of uh, Father Edmundo Rodriguez, a Jesuit priest who was a, a very much of a leader in many of the changes that happened in San Antonio in benefit of the Hispanic community in San Antonio at that time. And that just kind of led me to more and more interest in, in especially the Latin community. And I took a job at Notre Dame with the Holy Cross Fathers and Brothers in their Justice and Peace Center and also working in a parish in South Bend for a couple of years. And that's where I got to know Holy Cross Associates and uh, Holy Cross invited me to go to Chile with them for two years. I went for two and stayed for four. But I think, again, too, in, in knowing Cecilia at that time, in a very volatile moment in Chile, a very dangerous moment in many ways, in many aspects as well, and learning a lot from her, from her commitment as a university student uh, during, well, actually, she was in university when the coup took place, and then the follow-up and visits to uh, people who were imprisoned in the National Stadium and so on and so forth, and just the risks that people were taking at that time to uh, help the country return to a sense, to a democratic system and, and, and a, a system of justice. Uh, so it was tough times in many ways, but also very interesting and very exciting times. Um, and just down the road a bit mm -hmm. in our history, uh, we went, uh, we joined Marinol in 1985. Yep. 
And they sent us back to Chile. They sent us to a rural diocese of Linares, which at that time had a very, very prophetic bishop. Uh, we lived in a rural area for uh, a couple of years and then continued to work there and then moved into the city of Linares, where I became director of Catholic social services for the diocese, but also had the office that attended to the needs of families of the disappeared and detained. And we had another Marino Lemisher uh, lawyer who worked on our staff as well. So they were, and one, at one moment, our bishop was threatened with being kicked out of the country. So we lived some very interesting experiences in those moments, and especially in those years in the United. And with three little kids, which was always a concern as to what that meant in that reality and in that moment. But the big benefit, we were able to participate and be very much a part of the return to democracy through a peaceful process, through a plebiscite. And there was great organization in our in Linares and in our diocese of helping that process. So that morning after the plebiscite, and just know that this was a day of moment of change in Chile, was probably one of the most exciting days that we've ever lived in our lives. I had the opportunity to direct the choir of the uh, cathedral at this event was amazing. Was, for the bishop to yeah, support the bishop. To support the bishop. And uh, I also want to add that I had the privilege to work with actually uh, two other besides uh, Bishop Camus, uh, who was a very well-known human rights bishop, other two human rights bishops, um, Fernando Aristia and Enrique Alvear. And that was in my youth years and was amazing and was also during the dictatorship. So uh, to work, especially um, with all what was going on at that moment um, through the solidarity, victory, I don't know how to we say care, that. We we care. Care. And um, so to accompany family, to begin to get the names of people who were uh, detained and later on disappear, and also to create uh, an awareness and conscience, uh, especially in young people of what was going on. And the church was truly and highly committed to human rights. So that was uh, an amazing time. So later on uh, in Linares, uh, the bishop, like Sam said, asked us to go and work directly with him in Linares. So we moved to Linares and I, he asked me because of all my work in at the church level to create the liturgy department. So that was, kind of my main work. And later on as a family therapist, I work especially with uh, families uh, whose parents uh, were in prison or were detained or were disappeared. So was doing a lot of um, work with those families and specifically with the young people who were taking roles you know, as adults at that time, because um, the, the father or the mother or both sometimes were, you know, not able or not present actually because of the dictatorship. So that was uh, my work, especially during that time. After 
well, six, almost seven years in, in Chile, that first period, uh, we were asked to come back to Marinol, New York. And I assumed the position of director of Marinol Missioners in uh, late 19, well, early 1992, actually. And uh, we were there through 1996 uh, when, in helping Marinol Missioners become an independent organization uh, from the Marinol Fathers. We have been a program for many years of the Marinol Fathers and Brothers. So it became our own organization. We were about 167 lay missioners with a minimum three-year commitment in about 29 countries around the world at that time. So it was a very privileged time. It was a very busy time, exciting time. I had agreed from the beginning that in uh, 96, when our oldest daughter graduated from grade school, that we would return to Chile to continue our work there and let our kids go to high school in Chile. And that's what we did. And it was at the time when uh, we began the program, the Chile program that you participated uh, through. And uh, so it is a program that has a long history. And well, it started with just five students uh, in rural areas. Well, I, actually, I think it's important too. It, at the moment that Notre Dame began a program of overseas studies, a semester of overseas studies at Catholic University, Father Don McNeil, who's a real, he's now passed, but just a tremendous influence on many students at Notre Dame for many generations, uh, contacted us. And he said, we don't, we were still in New York at this time. He said, we don't want the program just to be a semester abroad. We want the young people to get in touch with the cultural, historical roots that are always in the rural areas of Chilean culture and society and the history of the church. So he looked to Mary Noel to do that. And there was a couple at that time, Nancy Brennan and um, Bill Jordan, who were Notre Dame uh, graduates, yes. both of them, mm -hmm. and Marino Lemission was working in Linares. And we were still in the States, <clears throat> excuse me. So they initiated this live-in experiential program uh, in Linares. We went back the next year and Nancy and Bill were finishing up their term and returning to the States. So at that time, then we assumed the program and it grew over the years. It was only what, about 10 days in the beginning, mm -hmm. and then it grew to a much longer program and also a larger involvement of students from Notre Dame and also then from Marquette and a few other universities at different times of contracted with Notre Dame. But just, uh, you know, so that was the beginning of something that's been very, very important in our lives. And to see people like Drew, like I think of many others that really kind of, it was a jumpstart experience uh, to really opening up a new world of the reality of the history of folks in Latin America and the struggles that the Latin American countries and peoples were facing. Uh, and literally hundreds of Notre Dame kids have gone through that, or students have gone through that uh, program over the years because we uh, usually had about 20 to, to 22 and then it expanded to two programs a year. So you go back over the years, it's a lot of folks. And yeah. it's just been a real privilege for us and we keep up with a lot of them today that's there was one year that we had 28 students 28, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing so, we were young that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of students to keep up with yes it is it is yes. it, it, it was, a lot of responsibility yeah, yeah. well i'm sure that when you had drew uh drew gave you no problems and no issues at all because <laughs> He follows the rules. He does what he needs to do. And uh, he's a very respectful young man. Yeah, 
But do you know more than following rules and those things? Uh, I think we learn a lot from the students. And uh, was for us, do uh, you know you you try to do this program and guide? Do you know and do the best and protect also and give a lot of guidelines and insights, whatever. But uh, it's also something in return because you begin to establish a relationship with the students and you begin to learn from them and you begin to grow as a person too, you know? And so has been really both ways. This is incredible. I, I'm, I have so many questions popping in my head right now. Um, but a couple of things I just want to know, again, thank you, uh, Sam and Cecilia, so much for joining us and for pro providing us with such rich information in history. Um, you know, Cecilia, you mentioned about uh, the concept of service of others and how that's, that was something that was embedded in your family growing up mm -hmm. in Chile and, and, uh, and how that's been something that has now um, grown into your own family. You know, you, you have your three children and yourself and your, your life mission is service to others. And uh, I just, I'm curious because, you know, hearing, hearing you talk about growing up in the Pinochet regime and dictatorship and then trying to also try to navigate that concept of service for others or being, being a, a, a service-oriented individual of other, other people, how, um, how did you navigate that? Because I, I, would, I would imagine that would be really difficult living under those circumstances and conditions? Mm -hmm. um, there is also uh, a lot of fear of doing things and um, you know, you don't know how the entire system will react to what you do. But I, I strongly believe that there is a goodness in human beings. And no matter, do you know, what you think or what you do or whatever, there is a goodness there. So more and more that you work in deepest level with the people and empowering people. And also, I think the community began to um, grow, do you know, and help people growing. Um, the good thing that we have and the support that we had at the time was the church. I think that was one thing that helped us a lot to navigate because uh, alone and without that support probably was much more um, dangerous to do. Uh, but we had, uh, do you know, a church that was behind and at that time was a behind very, the people, behind the people, yeah, behind, behind the communities and behind our work too, supporting us. So, and that, at that time, the church was a, a, an incredible phase, you know, of uh, supporting human rights and, and was a voice for all the voiceless. So I think this um, experience helped a lot, you know, to do this type of work. And um, I don't know if you want to add something. Well, I was just saying that some of the many stories that Cecilia has shared over the years and mm -hmm. with her children as well is like, you know, 
she was what, third year, fourth year in university mm -hmm. when the coup took place. Mm -hmm. So it was a very difficult time. Many students were taken, so on and so forth. But even in her neighborhoods, for example, at one point, the military came in, they would take all the men out from the homes and take them down to like the football field. And you didn't know if uh, your father, your brothers were going to return. Just incident after incident. And um, and I think, you know, exactly what you said, the, the experience of the church was such an incredible thing in Chile at that time. The, the leadership of Cardinal Silva and the whole vicariate of, of solidarity that played such an important role was really out of a, a campaign, a very difficult thing for the dictatorship to deal with because the church has great power in a Latin American country mm -hmm. and much more then than it would now even. So uh, it was a conflict for the government at the same time. And um, it kind of opened up those spaces. Not always, because there were many, there were many committed Christians, priests included, nuns included, that disappeared and, and were killed Yes, but especially in the first couple of weeks, but it did offer that that space, and that's probably what allowed the country to eventually uh, return to a democratic system. Yeah, and the other thing to complete my response, uh, Roger, um, we work with a team. We were part of a team, so it was not just my work or Sam's work. We were part of a mm -hmm. team. We travel to different communities. And right there in the communities, we also work, we created teams where were no teams. We created teams, so was was not a work of individuals, was the work of, was a collective work. And I think that helps a lot uh, in, in, like you say, navigate and work on those situations. You know, and I think the other thing too, uh, one of some of the principles of Marigold in going to mission, which mission is a loaded word, as we know. And part of our, uh, you know, our vision statement and statements was that we never went there to do for. We went there to accompany with, accompany and do with and learn from the people. And I think one of the greatest statements for uh, mission groups that are very, that really want to be in conjunction and work in conjunction, be in relationship with the local people and be a force of good for all, uh, is that when you walk into a new reality, in my case, for sure, you walk into that new reality, a new culture, you're walking on sacred ground that has a history. And you have to learn from that history first. You have to learn what it's about. It's not me as a North American going down to save the people in Chile. That's not what it, that's terrible. That's not what missions should be about. Mm -hmm. But it's bringing the talents together with the local folks and together uh, complementing what they're mm -hmm. already doing and being mm -hmm. a part of what they're doing, helping to create a better world, not creating a better world, helping to create a better world with them. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to add that we, we always work with the premise that there is richness, you know, richness in the people, in the community. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. It, do you know, they already have walked there together. When, when they gather and they create this community sense, they begin to realize that they really have a lot 
to give to each other and a lot to offer to <laughs> the entire community as a whole. You know, so the people have richness inside and sometimes they even don't realize that. So it's just working with them and helping them to, to see this. And in the process also, we also grew, you know, we also realized, wow, this is, so was was also a mutual learning together. And, and the other point that we have discovered through this work also is that a person is, is a whole, is much more than, do you know, a physical person or, or a mind person is also a spiritual being. So to work with this entire whole is so important. Sam and Cecilia, I can't, can't thank you enough for sharing so much of, of what you have today. And I think that, you know, we're finishing our series on encounter today. And I was wondering if you two could share maybe one example of, you know, a specific time about a specific family or person, you don't have to share their name or anything, but um, that was particularly impactful in your life. And if you could share a little bit about that with our listeners. Yes, several examples. And I, and I think one, uh, one thing that uh, you probably experienced, Drew, was uh, the relationships that we had in the community of San Dionisio, where you uh, stayed and where you experienced. And I've often thought of, if you remember, Don Alejandro giving the, uh, sharing the experience of how life was for uh, inquilinos, we would call in Chile, the, the, the peon that lived on the, the really a slave on, on the large uh, hacienda or in Chile we call it fundo. But the agrarian reform and the, the change that happened through the agrarian reform that really gave justice to the farm people was such an experience. And I think somebody like Don Alejandro, getting to know him, getting to know the story of how the people lived prior to that and the dignity, dignity that the agrarian reform brought to, to the rural people was just incredible. I am thinking another experience in our work with uh, the disappeared and detained and their, their families in the United States. Um, Maggie Rojas was a good friend and person about our same age. And her father and brother had been taken from their rural home um, like about a month after the coup in, in uh, 1973. And they disappeared and they never ever saw them again. They didn't know if they were dead or alive. The mother died, an old woman, and her greatest regret was that she didn't have a place to put flowers on. And I think that that pain and suffering of so many people in Chile at that time, the reality of what that is, but yet the strength in the people to continue the struggle for year after year after year. Um, and in the end, they, like many others, never knew. Probably what they think is the, the uh, military forces would take them out on airplanes, kill them first, torture, kill, and then take them out on airplanes and, and let their bodies fall into the ocean. That was, uh, there were other, there were graves that were uh, uncovered that were found, what have you, but 
many, many people still to this day don't know what happened to their, their relatives. And they were very the simple campesino people that worked the land. Uh, so all of those relationships and just our neighbors. We lived in, in the United States, we lived in a working class neighborhood and just developing the relationships that uh, are very important for us still today of how their families have grown, what's happening in their families, mm -hmm. that sense of compadrasco, being compadre, of being, you know, godparents or what have mm -hmm. you is very, very strong in, um, in Chilean and Latin society. So relationships, mm -hmm. I think is just mm -hmm. the most mm -hmm. important gift out of all of them. I want to mention one um, example. I, like Sam says, I could go over and over in many, many different cases, but um, I want to mention this because uh, for me it was a learning. I was working with a woman who, uh, as a family therapist, I work with the entire family. At the end, I, I continue working with just the mother. Um, and uh, the husband died uh, in an accident uh, in a sugar factory. That there, the reason why he died was because this factory didn't have all the safety measures. So in working and operating the, how do you call the silo? Yeah, the silo, the silo. Where the sugar would be Where stored. the sugar is stored. And suddenly he did, do you know, uh, something and the entire, uh, Tons and tons of sugar came into him and he was suffocated and, and died under all, all of the sugar. So it was really sad. And uh, so I began a work uh, actually with the children because some of them were having a lot of troubles in the school. So was actually um, kind of, they were reacting to something you know, and the school didn't know what to do. So I began to work with the children. Then I began to, I extended the work with the family. And uh, toward the end, I ended working with the woman and uh, with the mother. Um, because the main reason why every of the children were um, little by little, facing the reality better than the, the mother. And, uh, and of course, she was the one who was influencing, do you know, what was happening strongly in the family. So I, I ended working with her and was a long work with her because she never ever actually forgave her husband you know, for a long time of what happened because she was unable to see the reality and she felt that she, you know, she was, that was actually the husband who left her and she, she couldn't see the reality. And so I mentioned her because uh, for uh, usually um, we won, do you know, uh, uh, changes, quick changes in the people to see what I see and she was not able to see at that moment. But uh, 
working little by little to, you know, with every one of the people and ending with her. And then, you know, I continue to work with her through a group of people. Um, I realized, you know, that um, every person is unique. Every person has their own, you know, path. Um, changes come when we are ready to change and not when others want us to change. And even uh, sometimes uh, the changes is so little by little in our person and in our spirit that we even don't see those changes for, do you know, until the end. So for me, that experience of seeing a person that took so long uh, to, to make the needed changes um, was a teaching moment for me. And, uh, and also uh, the amazing thing for me to see that the changes came just before she needed to face another reality that was as tragic as the first one, and was to see the death of the oldest child uh, because he had leukemia and was never, do you know, um, diagnosed till the last moment. So he lasted a very short time. It, uh, you know, he was hospitalized and probably lasted a couple of months and that's it. So she needed to face that. And but uh, the way that she faced the reality, the way that she embraced this uh, young man, uh, you know, was so different from before and how she was able to accompany him and reconnect with him just before he died. As for forgiveness was, for me, was probably one of the most amazing spiritual realities that I experienced through this, through the experience of this woman. You know, how we can free ourselves and free others to in moments, in this, this is a tragic moment, but uh, even at those moments. Sam and Cecilia, thanks for, thanks for sharing that story with us. And it's, it's a reminder for not only social workers, but just anybody in the helping profession field um, to be aware of, of honoring where our clients are at that moment. Because you're right, we want them to get to a certain place whether it's emotionally or physically. And so as a helping professional, um, we script things on how they should happen. And then oftentimes we forget that our clients may not be ready to go to that place yet. And so just honoring the fact that our, our clients are taking, they're taking their own steps to get to where they need to go. And we're part of the process, but they're the ones who are driving and navigating it. And for us, it should just be an honor to be, to be in that space with them. So uh, that's an incredible story. And I thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, Roger, uh, kind of along that same line, I think that's one of the things over the years, 
as we interviewed people that were applying to become Maryland missioners was that openness to not go with an agenda, but to develop the agenda together with the folks as you arrived and learn from them. The teaching moment is so important to, to receive from folks. And I, you know, that was, the flag was, if you got somebody that was such a strong personality in the sense of, this is my agenda, this is my agenda. And they weren't the person to go with us overseas, you know. That opportunity, that openness has to be there. And I think it's important in any kind of an intercultural relationship. So one question I wanted to ask each of you two um, is, as you know, as I shared, we've we're talking a lot about encounter over these last couple of episodes, and uh, Pope Francis has often contrasted that with a culture of indifference. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the how you see those two things, and how is it that we can move from a place of indifference as a society to one of encounter? You know, I right off the bat, the thing that would come to my mind is I think fear is a very, very powerful. Uh, feeling. So it's, it's, it's fear is powerful. And if people can overcome fear, then I think we can open up to a lot of our capacities and our capacity to love and to care for others. And I think fear can be overcome in the best context in the sense of community that Cecilia was talking about before. And I think that's really what happened in Chile through from the time of the coup through the 17 years of the dictatorship that allowed it to open up to, to re-encounter democracy and re-encounter the value of this human person was doing it as a group, as a community with a lot of support from one another. And the call that Francis has given today is the call that was given certainly by the leadership in the Chilean church at that time. And um, so I think we have to be together because being alone is very fearful. But if you're with others, there's a mm-hmm. sense of, of good power. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think uh, this culture of indifference that Pope uh, is mentioning, I personally think goes hand by hand with the lack of love. And I mean the lack of love of ourselves first. I think we have many, many people around the world that lack the love of love of themselves Uh, because many realities, do you know, because uh, they have been surrounded by, um, you know, they have been abandoned sometimes, willing or not willing, do you know, the, the lack of presence of parents many times at the house because they need to work, do you know, if we talk about the working class in this country or in the rest of the world, uh, they need to work 12 or more hours and not be present to their children. Sometimes children are, do you know, kind of being parents for, of children sometimes. Or the reality, you know, people who have much more means um, that they are, you know, uh, more interested in having things, in doing things, and going here and there, traveling, and sometimes there is an abandonment also of their own children. So for me, when you 
do you know, grew up in those circumstances, in those realities, which I think to a certain extent is kind of the reality of our world. Um, people begin to be much more self-centered and egotistic and looking for ways of um, pleasing themselves and trying to love themselves in probably in a, in a very egotistic and self-centered way. And also um, sometimes it's better not to see the truth better, do you know, untruthful realities uh, than being honest with yourself and, and seeing who you are. And when I mean that, seeing everything, do you know, because we are a mix of many things. So seeing the richness that we have as well as the weakness that we have. And so for me, uh, when that happened, our cultures began to be much more, do you know, egotistic, self-centered, fearful, like Sam is saying, very fearful of uh, others, uh, suspicious of others, afraid of others, that they will take what we have, that they, so for me, the best thing, and that's probably one of the reasons why I, I like also my profession, is to, to work with the individuals to begin to see who truly, who truly they are, the richness that they have, the goodness that they have, and begin to love themselves because as soon as you begin to see that with clarity, you begin to see you know, uh, others and reality less suspicious and everything. And, and also the other component, no doubt, is to begin to see others. Because uh, when we are so self-centered, we are not able to see the other. And we are not able to see the true reality either. You know, what others live not just what I did. So for me, the key is in love, you know? Love yourself and love others for me is the response to this culture of indifference. And I, I think the other thing just building on that, and one thing that Pope Francis has uh, emphasized is the whole thing of greed. And when you look at systems, and you look at any Latin American country, the, the oppression of the indigenous peoples, uh, the sense of looking at them as not completely uh, human. human uh, it allows, those systems allow then one to make, well, I don't feel bad about oppressing folks and it gives me resources that I can do many things that other people can't do. And I said, we finally just look at our own country, classism, our, our issue of racism, that is constantly, uh, we're seeing it all the time as we watch the, the you know, the, the trial. Uh, Floyd. Uh, well, it's not. It's, but it's not you know, Floyd, it's, it's actually yeah, Chauvin. Chauvin's <laughs> trial. It's, it's like racism is so blatant in our history as we watch the whole English, the Great Britain's 
kind of the monarchy uh, cracking apart, you look at where racism and classism came and how it was created around the world and our incredible breach between rich and poor in this country today. How to, how to really build relationships that in a positive nonviolent way break that down and create, like Cecilia was saying, a sense of love and a sense of community. I think that's, that's what we experienced over those years in Chile and saw many times. Unfortunately, <laughs> down the road, the human person has a tendency to kind of fall back into those things. And after the return to democracy, it's been extremely, extremely difficult to watch the um, corruption within the systems. Yeah. of Chile. And now they're facing another crisis. It's just, and the crisis is showing up in COVID. You know, it's uh, the terrible handling of COVID. So it's, I, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say there is that, that that continual need to reflect on, we don't get it all fixed and then everything's good. We continually have to reflect and reflect and reflect as the times change. Mm -hmm. And do you know, just to, to uh, add a little bit to what Sam is saying, that is actually what I was saying too, but uh, in a more simplistic way, um, it's so important that the people has these two views, the inside view, as well as the outside, in a, in a very important <coughs> dynamic. It's very important that people has that dynamic. If you go, because one of the big problem is the person who are so self-centered and egotistic, they don't have the view of inside at all. You know, they are just, uh, looking, do you know, superficially of who they are and what, you know, is around them. Uh, so they need to go in deep, deep inside of themselves and grow and love this person inside. And as well as you need to go out and encounter actually the, sometimes the people that I fear. Because it's the only way when you encounter those one so-called sometimes enemies is when you realize that is a person exactly like you and has so much richness and so much to give you as you have to give. So that's for me so important this dynamic. You know, it, it, hearing you talk about all this, uh, Cecilia, you had mentioned um, love, right? Um, and it reminds me of the classic Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. And that's just, uh, what a beautiful way to bring this all together is we're talking about encounter, you know, we're talking about indifferences, but when you bring it all together, it's like, like the Beatles said, all you need is love. And like you, I, like I, you just I, said, I, love, all you need is love. All you need is love. And the other song <laughs> is the imagine. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, legendary John uh, John Lennon, yeah. John Lennon. I, I think Drew, you need to um, go ahead and bring out your uh, your acoustic guitar, and we can uh, <laughs> we can do a serenade here um, on the on the show. Yeah, we might have to use some Quakers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
So as we as we near the end of our episode, I'd love to turn this over to Roger um, to ask a question about 80s and 90s culture. So Roger, could you ask our wonderful guests uh, something that they can share about life in the 80s and 90s? Most definitely, most definitely. So um, I usually ask a, a pop culture type question to our guests uh, related to the 80s and 90s. So um, and and you you mentioned it earlier, and, and perhaps this is going to be your response, or maybe it's another response. Um, but I, I was want, wanting to ask y'all, what '80s and '90s news event do you vividly remember, and why? And uh, you had mentioned it earlier, um, but but perhaps there's another news event from the '80s and '90s that you that you vividly remember um, that you can share. You know. Um... For me personally, uh, and I, I, music and art, and that's something that coming from North Central Kansas wasn't really a big agenda on my uh, or item on my life agenda. But my encounter in Chile with music and art was very, very strong. And right at that time, uh, because of the dictatorship, there was all kinds of music being developed and artists uh, that had come along in the 60s and up through of uh, Allende and then into the coup, people like Violeta Parra, well, she actually died before, uh, Victor Jara, who was killed by the uh, military coup, by the military after the coup happened. Their music lives on today. It's incredible. All the, the strife that's happening in Chile in the last couple of years, the music of uh, Victor Jara just lives on. Our second, our second daughter's name is Maria Violeta. She's named after Violeta Parra. Mm -hmm. And our son is Victor <laughs> Samuel, named after Victor. So they have, they've really kind of taken in. Victor had an, was able to have an encounter with Victor Jara's wife at one point in Chile. So that was really wonderful. But the importance of that music. But for me, the one moment that was just so powerful is there's a group, another group that I love, Ijapu. It's a northern, uh, you know, the, the Indian music uh, group. They were kicked out of the country maybe about 1979. No, they were in a, in a tour. They were in a tour of Europe, and they weren't allowed to come back. They were the not country. allowed to come back. After the 73, they yeah. were not allowed. So they were allowed to come back in the year that the plebiscite, 1988, was happening. And they came into the country, and the first week where they were there, I was able to participate in one of their concerts. It's the most electric experience I've ever had in my life. It was just absolutely energy, energy. And it happened uh, the Friday night before the grand encounter of a march for, for return to democracy had happened from north to south in Chile. Two million people came together in the Pan American Highway. There was a stage set up in the middle there and they were there and they were singing. It was just a couple of days that were just electric. And um, so art, music has become a much more important part of my life after my experience in Chile. Yeah, well, for me too, I, uh, of course, and I will say that um, Quilapayún was one of the most powerful groups in Chile. Uh, most of them, you know, were very committed to during, especially during the time of Allendez, and they they went into the exilio exile. 
in Jurokto, and uh, they have some of the most beautiful songs. And Victor Jara was one of the composers for some of the songs of Kilapayun, so that was one thing. But uh, another person that called my attention uh, because, uh, do you know, I have been living in Chile most of my life. I, I will say that 2000 on, I have been more in this country, so. And uh, was Joanne Baez, and I love the music of Joanne. And I think she was connecting to what was happening, strongly what was happening in Latin America at that time. And uh, I'm- Can I interrupt you? Yeah. Important to, we actually, just the week before we left Chile uh, in 19, uh, 81, mm -hmm. when we were married and Cecilia was pregnant with our first daughter, um, Joan Baez came to the country mm -hmm. and she gave a concert in, um, it was a, a school up in Nunoa that Drew uh, was kind of know the area. And we were like waiting inside when she came in. She came in with, with um, uh, Pablo Neruda's mm -hmm. wife, Matilde, mm -hmm. and she passed by us about a foot away from my bodies. And it was just, that was an electric moment. And interestingly, when she left the country, and this was, this was under the dictatorship, of course, and it was kind of amazing that they even let her in. When she left the country at the airport, all of her pictures and recordings, everything she had was confiscated by the police. So everything was taken away from her before she left the country. And one of her big songs in an album that I had years ago, I was speaking of Violeta Parra, was Gracias a la Vida. Mm -hmm. And I think that song has always been very meaningful to us. It was sung at our wedding, mm -hmm. it's been sung at baptisms, and it's been, and I think what Cecilia was talking about before, that whole sense of thanks to life, what does life give us, what are all the treasures, is so present in Violeta Parra's famous Gracias a la Vida. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I want to mention is, um, well, Silvio Rodriguez, there are so many in Latin America that are so important. And, but uh, the other thing that I want to mention at that time where uh, a lot of uh, the, the music, because was prohibited by the government, by the dictatorship, uh, especially the music <coughs> with meaning, do you know, anything, that had a strong meaning was suspicious by the government. So began to proliferate a lot of these groups that were clandestine and the clandestine. Yeah, yeah, clandestine. Clandestine, yes. Um, were these groups of peñas, Peñas folkloricas. Then, you know, after the dictatorship, all the peñas, you know, show up. But at that time, everything was. They're like know, speakeasies. Huh? <laughs> They're kind of like speakeasies. So you were into these places, and uh, nobody, you know, people knew where they were getting together just to sing these songs that had strong meaning. I participated a lot in several of those singing and, you know, and uh, knowing people, so. Wow. 
What an amazing, what, what amazing stories. I could spend hours and hours just hearing y'all talk about your journeys and your adventures and, and the fact that you were part of a lot of um, historical events uh, that happened um, over the past uh, few decades. So um, I really want to thank you for your time. I appreciate, uh, you know, your livelihood. I appreciate uh, your energy. And I also appreciate the fact that uh, you were part of Drew's life. And um, I'm just so thankful. So thanks for joining us today. I, I, I learned so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing the music that you had um, when you mentioned Viola Tapara and you mentioned um, some of the other, like, and, and Joan Baez. I actually saw Joan Baez here in Atlanta uh, just a year ago, and she sang Gracias a la Vida, which was uh, wonderful to hear um, all the way up here in the United States in Atlanta. So, uh, and I was also, it makes me think of the song um, that is. Um, often sung by Mercedes Sosa, um, Solo le pido a Dios, que no me sea indiferente, right? Um, and I think that song has always been... <laughs> you know, Treno Sur, I, I love, and um, and I, I've always been in particular uh, drawn to Valerilos que sobran, uh, which is just another great tune from the Prisioneros, but... Um, but that Mercedes Sosa song, I think now always comes back to me where I think about that line of no me sea indiferente and, and how that is remind that's something that I think is, is important, a powerful impact in my life and how to think about ways of moving past indifference. So uh, Sam and Cecilia, I just really want to thank you so much for coming today, for joining us on the show. Uh, for listeners who are interested in learning more about Sam and Cecilia's work, you can navigate to our webpage at www.commongooddata.com slash podcast, and you'll see um, the show notes there and links to some of the music that we've referred to today um, and to some of the work that they have done as uh, lay missioners in Linares in Chile and around the world. And so thank you so much, Sam and Cecilia, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, and thanks for listening. As we reach the end of our show, we at the Common Good Hour uh, like to recognize and to remember people who have shown great kindness and who embody the, the values that we try to live out on this show. And to do that, we'd like to conclude our show with Roger sharing a story about a moment that happened to him in the past couple of weeks that speaks to just that. Yeah, thanks, Drew. I appreciate it. Um, you know, going through you know trials and tribulations in life, we encounter people who um, make a difference. We encounter people who make a difference, who have always been there, like family and friends, et cetera. But we also encounter people who we've never, we've never met before, who become part of our lives due to a gesture or just due to them displaying empathy for what you're going through. And so I, I did want to, um, I did want to talk about a few individuals and give a shout out, uh, particularly to the medical staff at John F. Kennedy Hospital. Um, in Lake Worth, Florida, for providing uh, the care that my that my mom deserved to have uh, during her time there as she was battling COVID-19. 
one particular individual is uh, an angel sent from above and she now has become part of our family. She is part of our familia. She is our hermana now. And we are forever grateful for the care, for the genuine, genuine love that she displayed for our mom. Um, because it was just, it wasn't just a job for her. It was, she wanted to make sure that my mom um, felt loved. And so nurse Carmen Cordova, we really want to thank you. We, we appreciate you and um, everything that you did for our mom meant the world to us. And knowing that she was with somebody who was not only supporting her, but who was, who was battling with her um, to the end uh, meant so much to us. So you are now officially part of our family. You, you, and we've, we've already talked and we've, 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 uh, we've expressed how much we care for you. And so, um, so thank you so much. And the next individual I'd like to um, just express a lot of gratitude and give a shout out to is Alex Acosta, aka Cost, who we did an interview with uh, previously for um, one of our other episodes. And, you know, I, I, I hadn't met Alex um, up until that point when, we, when Drew and I were interviewing him, along with Floyd Hall and Ann Dennington. And so, you know, uh, Alex didn't know me. I didn't know him. It was a great interview. And I shared with them at that time, my mom was uh, in the COVID ICU and I was just sharing with them uh, about, you know, my life challenge at the moment and how we were hoping and praying that my mom was going to get better. And so um, everybody offered their condolences in the sense of like, Hey, we're with you. Your mom's going to get better. And then a few days later, um, my mom passed away. And so um, I had reached out to our guests because I just wanted to say thank you for, for coming on to the podcast. And by the way, I just wanted to give you a heads up. My mom did pass away. And Alex reached out to me um, on a, per with a personal email and just was so saddened by the loss uh, that I had experienced. And then just asked me for my address. And, um, and so I emailed him back and thanked him and gave him my address. And then, um, you know, fast, flash forward, fast, uh, fast forward a few weeks later and then uh, the other day, I'm sitting on my porch, uh, just contemplating life, you know, and uh, the um, uh, uh, the post office is delivering the mail and I get a, a package. And I was like, well, I didn't order anything. And it was a, a big package. And as I was opening it, um, I noticed that it was uh, a record. And it was... Um, it was a record uh, by a tribe called Quest, Midnight Mar Marauders, and um, and I was trying to figure out who would send this, and then it it made sense to me. Alex and I and Drew and everybody during the actual episode that we recorded talked about our love for hip hop and um, how we both loved a tribe called Quest, and so that that was uh, what he sent me. He sent me an original. Uh, an original vinyl of Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders, and and still wrapped, not not even on the seal has not been broken, and that just meant so much to me that here is somebody who doesn't know me, uh, and you know he had no reason, but yet he was just compelled to send me something because he knew I was hurting, and and that just meant the world to me. So Alex, thank you so much uh, for just being you, and I will pay this forward. So 
As we conclude our episode, uh, we all remember the amazing people like uh, Alex and the folks in Florida who supported Norma Saclupe through her final days. And we just want to say thank you from the Common Good Hour to all those people out there who are doing the good work, who are making spaces for encounter, and who are truly trying to bring about a better world. Thank you. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcasts. Be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us at the handle at Common Good Hour on Twitter. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.